I got a Christmas letter yesterday. Do you get Christmas letters? You get these? Rhonda loves these. Here's one you'd like to see. Okay, you ready? Um, it's hard to believe another year has come and gone, and we're fast approaching Christmas. It's been an eventful year for us, and we wanted to keep you updated on the household. You may have heard that my wife, Wendy, had, was arrest, had me arrested in May. I really didn't think I hit her that hard, but the police noted that the five teeth I knocked out were evidence that the blow was pretty forceful. It came at the end of a long night of drinking, and all we know is that Wendy can be a little overbearing. So I spent 30 days in lockup and dried out for the first time in about five years. While, while in jail, I got involved in a program called Celebrate Recovery. I think this is funny. Um, that's not only helped me stop drinking, but it's forced me to look at some deeper issues in my life, like why I was drinking so much. So you could call me a recovering alcoholic with 197 days of sobriety, yay God. After I asked Wendy to forgive me, she confessed she'd been having an affair for the last four years and that this wasn't the first time. In fact, it appears that Susan, our youngest, is really the daughter of a dentist in Toledo. <laughs> wouldn't you like that? I'm cynical, but wouldn't you like to get one of these? Oh boy, you can imagine that was hard to take, but I'm working through it and trusting God's grace in the moment. Wendy and I are committed to making things work and have started seeing a Christian counselor to help us rebuild our marriage. We're so proud of our son, Duke, who got the lowest grade you could possibly get on exams and still graduated at the local junior college. He's pretty happy with his job in pizza delivery because it allows him flexibility when the surf's up. We've been trying to encourage him to be more ambitious and to apply for a janitorial job at the local law school. Our son Tiger just received an award for having the largest collection of Marilyn Manson memorabilia in the Midwest. We'll probably box it all up after Christmas, though, since the judge told Tiger he'd have to join the Marines in order to avoid a three-year prison sentence. Semper Fi. Okay, well, I, I could go on, but you, don't you wish you could get one of those, right? Instead of the gun we get. I, I really did get one yesterday, but it wasn't that one. The year was 1809. Uh, not that year, but 1809, okay? The headlines are all about the sweeping march of Napoleon across Europe. In the wake of the destruction and blood, nothing seemed as important as what was going on in that part of the world. But what was going on in the rest of the world? 1809, you ready? In England, William Gladstone and Alfred Tennyson were born. In Massachusetts, Oliver Wendell Holmes and Edgar Allan Poe were born. A young physician and his wife named their infant son Charles Robert Darwin. 1809. And in a log cabin in Kentucky, a child by the name of Abraham Lincoln was born in 1809. But the world's focus was on what's going on with Napoleon's march in Europe. Isn't it interesting how a date can make all the difference in the world? Now, I, I wanted to, um, we're going to do a little bit of study here in a minute, but I, I kind of wanted to take a little quiz. Can we do that? How, how familiar are you with Christmas stuff, uh, Christmas traditions and info? All right, so I'm, we're going to go to, um, we're going to do this little bit of um, where did all this stuff come from? Did it come from the Gospel of Matthew? Did it come from the Gospel of Luke? Or is it just a tradition that we got from somewhere else? Okay, want to play? Here we go. All right, if I can get it to work. Okay, 
The visit of the Magi, where'd that come from? Is that Matthew, Luke, or tradition? Matthew. It's actually Matthew 2, 1 and 2. Yeah, it talks about them coming. All right. How about King Herod the Great? Is he in the Bible? Okay, where is he found? In Matthew. Matthew 2, verse 3. Talks about Herod and talks about uh, his paranoia. We talked about that actually a couple weeks ago. All right. Caesar Augustus. Is he really in there somewhere? Or is that just something we read in history? He's actually in there. We'll talk about him in just a minute. Uh, Caesar's in Luke 2 begins, uh, the, the Christmas story in Luke really actually begins kind of with uh, Caesar Augustus and his decree, okay? The Bethlehem innkeeper. Luke, what do you think? There's no innkeeper in there, okay? No innkeeper in there. If you, if you read, this, by the way, comes from, you know, comes from kids' pageants in bathrobes, okay? Okay. Um, if you go to Luke 2 and read verse 7, it just says they found a place in a stable because there was no room in the inn. I mean, that's it. there's no innkeeper. There probably was an innkeeper. He's only implied. But, that's, but how many stories have we heard over the years about the innkeeper in Bethlehem, right? And he's kind of a bad guy. He's not Tom Baudet. Oh, yeah, okay. All right. Emmanuel, God with us. Where, where do we get that? A dollar bill? <laughs> I think that's a pluribus unum. Yeah. Huh? Okay. All right. Now, the person, the, the gospel writer that connects the dots for us is Matthew, Matthew 1.23, and he's quoting from Isaiah 7.14 that we've looked at the last couple of weeks. And uh, what I love about Matthew is he says, this is about this child. And he says, he's the one that actually connects the dots and says, uh, calls him God with us. Um, for his, anyway, that, that, that's, that's beautiful. All right. How about Mary's donkey? Every, every, one, of the, every one of the stories, you know, you, re, you watch some kind of a, uh, a dramatic thing on TV, it's got Mary on a donkey. Right? Where does that come from? That... Matthew, is that Luke? Is that tradition? It's actually tradition, yeah. Yeah, they just talked about they had to go to Bethlehem. I mean, it doesn't really say she was on a donkey. We kind of hope that Joseph put her on a donkey. But, you know, it's not really there, okay? How are you doing so far? You doing all right? Okay. The names of the three magi, Gaspar, Malchior, and Clyde. I can't remember the third one. Where did that come from? That, now, we said uh, the, visit, the, the visit of the Magi comes from uh, Matthew. Okay, so is it there? Okay. First of all, we're not real sure there was three. Okay. Okay. It's just, that's, that's tradition. All right. And it just says they came from the east. Um, there's not three of them. Their names, actually, we get from places like Amal and the Night Visitors, which is kind of an operatic um, version of the Christmas story, all right? But no names in the Bible for them. You can call them, uh, call them whatever you want, Mary, Curly, and Larry, if you want to. Okay, all right. The flight to Egypt. Now, I'm ta talking about an airplane. I'm talking about the dis escape to Egypt. Is that in the Bible? Where? 
Well, think about it. It's actually in the context of the Magi's visit. So that was going to be told us in the second chapter of Matthew. And it, several verses will talk about that. Well, I love that kind of romantic tradition that the gifts of the Magi funded the trip to Egypt. I don't know anything about that, but I like that kind of romantic tradition of that. You know, that the gold uh, Joseph used to pay for the trip to Egypt. I don't, I don't know anything about that. But that's a thought. Okay. Uh, how about an angel appearing to Joseph? Did that happen? Okay, it happened in a dream. Where was that? It was in Matthew. Yeah, first chapter of Matthew. I think we looked at that a couple weeks ago. All right. Are you doing pretty good on this? Are you keeping track of how many you're getting right? Okay. All right. How about Rudolph the Red-Nosed Reindeer? Matthew, Luke. It came from Gene Autry. You're right. Uh, are you kidding me? That's my answer to that one. Yeah, uh, it came from Gene Autry, I think. But I don't know if he wrote it, but he's saying it, uh, which it is good coming from a guy in cowboy boots. Okay, that's good. All right, Gabriel announces the birth of the child, a conception to Mary. Where is that found? Where is that one found? It's actually in Luke. Yeah, it's in the first chapter of Luke. That's the beautiful chapter where John the Baptist's birth is predicted and the angel comes to Mary. And, yeah. All right. How about swaddling cloths or clothes? Is that really in there? It actually is. Now, in, in most of our modern Bibles, it's, in Luke 2, it's just going to say she wrapped him in cloths. Uh, the swaddling clothes is kind of an old English term that I think was, if you've got a King James in front of you, you can probably find that idea. Swaddling cloths is kind of that idea. Um, this is not talking about a barbecue place on North Memorial. That's swaddlies, not swaddling. Okay, that's a different deal. All right, now, about a manger, is that in there? Or is it just, okay, Sherman, I'm, I'm putting it out there. Is that just a song that Tammy Wynette sings? Okay, all right. And I love it. It's the best way the manger ever is the one Tammy Wynette does. Okay, all right. Uh, no, it's in there, Luke 2, yeah. She wrapped him in cloths and laid him in a manger. Okay, that's in there. All right, we're doing good. How about a star over a stable? Tricky. Tricky. There's a star that leads the magi to where they're going. But by the time they get there, they're probably, they're not living in that stable. For, he's a holy toddler by then, okay? And uh, they're not still in the stable, okay? Uh, all right. He's probably a couple years old by then. So that the idea of, you know, every crash scene you've ever seen has a star over the... Okay, that probably didn't happen. But, but you know you know the deal, don't you? They didn't all show up at once. The shepherds and... Okay. I just, I, sorry if I burst your bubble on that one. We've got, we've got that set, set up at home, too, where they're all there together. Angels. Angels appeared to the shepherds. Where does that come from? It's Luke. In fact, we're going to look at that in just a minute. Yeah, Luke 2, verse 9 and verse 13 and 14. Okay? The little drummer boy. Huh? You think that's tradition? Here's the deal on that. <coughs> I, got a, I got a newborn baby asleep. I'm not going to invite a kid to play drums, Okay? 
Maybe you would, but I wouldn't. So, okay, here's the question. I asked it a little bit ago. Suppose you're asked to explain the significance of Christmas. Hopefully what we've done the last two or three weeks will help you a little bit with that. But what, what would be the situation? Here's how to frame that question. And uh, Milton, thanks for reminding us to kind of prepare for those conversations this week. What would the world be like? What would the situation in the world be like if Jesus had not come? That's what you got to think about a little bit here. Now, Bob, can I get you to go to Luke 2? I'm going to coach you a little bit on what we're going to read here in the next little bit. All right? But what we're going to deal with a little bit today is this idea. What were the residents of Judea likely focused on as the second chapter of Luke began? Read the first couple of verses, Bob. Yeah, a couple things to notice here, okay? First of all, and you don't have anything to write, on, you don't have notes to write on, sorry, you can write on the back of a prayer card if you want to. Um, Augustus was Caesar. Now, interesting, his name was not really Augustus, it was something else. He had named himself Augustus because he believed that he was God. Isn't that interesting? The August One. I find that really intriguing as the story begins, that the August One, Augustus Caesar, um, issues a decree. It's um, what I would call probably a capricious economic edict. We don't have any of those in our day, right? <laughs> capricious economic edicts, you know, you know that are going to affect lots of, lots of people in the world, but this one kind of did. It's a census that leads to a tax, okay? But what you and I know is this one who really believed he was, according to my Tennessee friends, the big daddy rabbit in the world, okay? Okay? The guy who was the august one in charge of it all and could, on a whim, cause things to kind of take place all over the world. Really, for you and me, and for, for and we're the only ones who really talk about Augustus Caesar. You can read about him in the history books, but he's a little more than an asterisk in the pages of your history book. Luke is going to record that historical fact, which I find pretty wonderful. And he's going to mention here a census was declared during the, the first census of Quirinius. Now, what's interesting about that, and again, Dr. Luke gives us lots of detail that we can hang our hats on here. We know when Quirinius became the governor in that region. And we know when he declared the first census. So really, Jesus was born about... Uh, we think about 8 A.D., in a, in our, according to our Roman calendars, because Quirinius became the uh, procurator or governor in about 6 and declared this first tax in about 8. Isn't it interesting that Luke tells us exactly when it took place? This is not a story. I've told you this kind of thing before. This is not a story that begins once upon a time. Get your head around that for a minute. Dr. Luke puts it in a historical perspective. Augustus was the Caesar, Quirinius was the governor, and it was when he declared the tax. It was when the, um, the census was declared. All those things give us a pretty exact date of when this took place. All right? Now, 
There's some important cultural conditions that we've got to kind of consider here as we think about what's going to happen. All right? Palestine, which is where uh, Jesus was born, was under Roman rule. That's why Augustus Caesar had anything to do with this at all. Greek was the common language. That had happened about 331 or so B.C. Koine Greek became the, the common language of the people. It became the, the, uh, the language of commerce and really paved the way for our New Testament to be written. In about 225 B.C., 255, I'm sorry, B.C., a version of, of the Old Testament was codified and put together called the Septuagint. It, it, I could give you some other history on why it's called that, but the, the meaning of it is the, the whole world could read the Bible for the first time because it was written in Greek, collected by scholars in Alexandria, Egypt, so that the whole world could read about God. All these things are kind of taking place. Roman rule, Greek language. The Romans had built in about um, 312 B.C., you ever read about the Appian Way? That's part of a system of roads that were built that allowed travel to increase. When, uh, when we, uh, in other settings, will study about the travels of Paul, a lot of that was aided by what Ro the Romans had done in about the 4th century B.C., the building of roads. Now, uh, it's interesting to me. In fact, Bob, I'm going to have you go to verse 8, Okay. And read down through 11. And I want you to think, when you hear the word good news, I want you to think gospel. Okay? 8 through 11. Luke 2. Okay, now, says here, verse, uh, about verse 10, Bob, I think is where it starts to talk about, um, I bring you good news, okay? The word gospel is implied there, the good news. It might surprise you to know that this was a common term used, this gospel, the good news. It was first coined Interestingly, by Caesar Augustus himself, the gospel. This is the age of the gospel. But it was meant, when he coined it, it was meant, uh, the, was first used and coined by Caesar to describe his new world order. This is the good news. Isn't it interesting that Dr. Luke and, uh, picks up on that concept, gives it a different spin, and gives it real meaning. The real gospel was told for the first time to those uh, shepherds out in the fields abiding with their flocks by night. All right, now, so, Caesar proclaims a census. Quirinius administrates it. Palestine's under Roman rule. Everybody can kind of speak a common language. Their roads so I can get from one place to another. Why are all these details important? Because all of these are details of God's plan to save the world and to save you and to save me. 
It's not necessarily the fact that some of these things had to do with what, Rome, what was going on in Rome. It has everything to do with what was going on in heaven. And our Lord, um, uh, the Lord God, kind of orchestrating all of the details of, that, of those things. Now, let's talk for just a minute. What do you think we can learn about God from the Christmas story? What do you learn about God from thinking about Christmas? By the way, you won't learn much about God watching the Lifetime channel. We've watched some Lifetime movies lately. They're very cute, and they all have the same theme, okay? Everyone them have the same thing. You won't learn a whole lot about God watching the Hallmark channel this time of year, okay? Probably won't learn much about God watching Home Alone or Christmas Vacation, okay? Probably, I don't, I, it's not that I'm against those things. What do you learn about God from looking at the Christmas story? Want to throw something out there? God so loved the world. Boy, Marty did such a great job at that the other day. He surrendered his glory to come and be one of us. Those are good things. John? He's got a plan. Boy, that's good, isn't it? He's got a plan. God's got a plan. What God came, gave up in order to come and be a part of us. It's amazing to contemplate. Could, could I take a couple of these thoughts and put, put it in one? By the way, this comes from Philip Yancey. Here's one of the things Philip Yancey says about the, what the Christmas story tells us. Number one, God is humble. The master of the universe, the creator of all there is, takes on a humble birth on the earth. In fact, if you want to read the last three verses of Matthew 11, you'll learn that the only place where Jesus kind of describes himself at the age of 30 or so is he will say, I am gentle and humble in heart. Isn't it interesting that the one who knows about how it all fits together, the only one walking the planet who knew how it was all fit together because he did it, that one will say, you know what? I'm just gentle and humble. Follow me. By the way, if anyone else tells you they're humble, run. <laughs> if he tells you that, you can take it to the bank. He's humble. What a humble existence. I think, secondly, a couple of things you've said. God is approachable. One of the things the Christmas story teaches us is God is approachable. Um, we studied a few weeks ago, Acts 17, where Paul wanted to be sure that the, the Greeks at Mars Hill, those philosophers, knew to reach out to the unknown God. You can be, you can be found, you can be apprehended, you can be known, he's approachable. What do you think about this one? This is good. God is the friend of the underdog. What part of the story tells us that? I think the shepherds are, are a prime example of it, yeah. Because you have to realize they suck. They suck. I 
we probably don't know how bad. Yeah. Yeah. Even the choice of Mary and Joseph, the underdog, certainly. I'll give you one more. It comes from Yancey. God is a courageous God. In what way is God courageous in the Christmas story? hard was it for God to say, what is it that's going to fix mankind? What do they need, Katie, back to framing it that way? And he says, I know, I'll send him a son who will be a savior. It's wonderful. It took courage to do that, didn't it? Undaunting courage. Okay, I haven't pre-read this, so Joe, this better be good. Okay. Called the gift. Is this written this year? Last night. Oh, the, the ink is still wet. Okay. Corporations place their entire year's play on the results of what happens after Thanksgiving Day. Everything revolves on us buying more and more so they can justify what they charge in their store. We've forgotten what happened halfway around the world 2,000 years ago. 2,000-some years ago, a babe was born to a girl. God became man in this tiny babe. So a misery-filled world might choose to be saved. This gift our God gave of Mary's babe from heaven would be the greatest gift ever given. And Joe just closes with wishing you a Merry Christmas and a very blessed New Year. That's wonderful, Joe. Very good. Very good. Let me add the words of another um, somewhat poet. These come, this comes from C.S. Lewis from the Screwtape Letters. When he's coaching uh, in, in, in the Screwtape Letters, if, you, if you've ever read it, it's a, a wizened old demon coaching his nephew on how to tempt a Christian, how to test a Christian and destroy. He says this, I shudder to think what might happen if too many Christians should suddenly remember what Christmas is all about. Let me read it again. I shudder to think what might happen if too many Christians should suddenly remember what Christmas is all about. Heavenly Father, we're grateful this year and this season for the gift of a baby in a manger whom we believe by faith was and is the son of the living God. Lord, we have kind of staked our reputations. Many of us have staked our fortunes, our lives, and our existence on the truth of that mere fact. Lord, we're grateful that the Christmas season reminds us of so many things about you. We're grateful that when we were struggling as a people to understand 
what God was really like. You sent a son to show us exactly what he's like. Thank you. Now, Lord, as we gather this week with family and friends and as we take a little bit of rest time and whatever we're going to do, we would ask that you would continually over the next week or so invade our thoughts with the reminders of what started this whole thing to begin with. We want to be dangerously Christian in a world that so desperately needs this good news message. So we ask these things now in the name of a baby in a manger who became a savior on a cross. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.